allow me to uh, allow me to uh, pray. Father, I pray that you will speak through me to your people, that you will hear your voice, not mine, and their hearts will be convicted by the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's good to be back, and I'm so glad to be able to be here to speak to you. I think I'm the first uh, live speaker uh, in Bishan. If there's something that I want you to remember, it's about listen to the good news that God has proclaimed through His Son, Jesus Christ, and our Lord, that you may repent and follow Him. The main point, what I want to share with you is listen to the good news that God has proclaimed concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, that you may repent and follow Him. As Christians and those who desire to know more about the gospel here, we would do well to listen what God and Jesus has to say about the gospel. What is the best news that you have received recently? A letter of acceptance to your desired school or work? A promotion? Bonus? Your family is expecting a baby? You are cancer-free? Or the one that we have been looking forward to, that the pandemic is over, finally. No more masks, no more vaccination shots, no more, inter- no more safety measures at all. These are good news because we believe that these are something that our heart desires, that is something that we need. But the Bible speaks of a good news and addresses something of a deeper need that you and I don't normally talk about in our conversations. We don't even recognize it. Sometimes we may even deliberately avoid it. And it talks about something that the world can never meet and give. And the need is you and I are broken people. There is something seriously wrong with us. I guess in, in our climate in Singapore, being a cosmopolitan country itself, we have so many resources and we have so many reach to the luxuries of life that we dress up so well and nicely, like all of you here, that we cover up all the ugliness. We try to cover up all the inadequacies and the things that are wrong in us and, pro- and project and portray that we are all right. But we are not. There is something broken in us. And that we know it, and we see it every day of our lives. So what is the gospel? Now, has someone recently told you that they have both good news and bad news? So which would you choose first? I would normally choose to hear the bad news first. Then I'll feel better after hearing the good news. But before, so before I tell you about the good news, unfortunately, I have to tell you the bad news. And the bad news is there is more than one kind of gospel going around in our churches. ARPC has, has an unusual number of people who are transferred to our church. And many come from different backgrounds and different experiences. 
And I think you will know what I mean when I talk about a different gospel. Therefore, it is important for us to have the right and proper understanding of the gospel because what is at stake is nothing short of your eternal life and my eternal life. And so ever since the true gospel was preached, false gospels have been abounding. And the apostles and later Christians have been battling and contending against these false gospels. It was the early church battle. And so I don't have any slides, so I would like you to participate with me in reading God's Word. If you can, if you have the physical Bible with you or electronic, turn to Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 to 9. To give you a backdrop of why we need to know the true gospel, Paul writes that he is astonished at the church that he had founded, that people are turning away to a different gospel and how they are distorting the gospel of Christ and that there is a gospel contrary to the one that he has preached to them. You see, what had happened is that people false teachers and prophets have infiltrated to this church that had received the true gospel and told them something else. And what is so bad that they are so deeply worn that Paul would tell them that if anyone were to preach to you a different gospel, whether it's an angel, an apostle, or anyone who proclaims to be a servant of God, any one of us, let him be accursed which is a very strong and weighty word, a warning, a severe warning for all who preach the gospel. Now, what is happening here? What is happening here is that there were people who were adding on to the gospel that the Galatian church had received. It was the gospel of Jesus plus. So besides believing the gospel by faith, they were taught that they needed to observe the law. Now, the law is not a bad thing. It is a good thing that Paul argues. But the law is unable to save you and me from the problem of sin. And so this is what had corrupted the gospel that Paul was warning about. It was the gospel of Jesus plus something else that Paul warns about. And by keeping the law what has happened is that this gospel has now become corrupted. It has placed men to be the center of the gospel, not Jesus. It has placed men's effort, not Jesus' work as the center. And so that's why Paul had such severe warning towards those who preach a different gospel. Sadly, today, there are false gospels being preached and taught in our churches. I'll give you a few. Salvation by your own religious works. So how you serve and do good things for God so that you can be saved. Or by your own morality. So that because you are a good person, you are a nice person, you keep to the moral laws, that's why God will save you. Or something a bit... Something that we recognize. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel because it teaches you that you are saved to be rich, to be blessed, to be free of suffering. And in order to be saved, you need to give. 
You need to give generously to God, and to do so, you give it to the church. And the last one, that in order to be saved, to show that you are saved, not only must you have faith in the gospel, but you must prove it by signs and wonders, by doing something miraculous, then we know that you are saved. You see, brothers and sisters, these are false gospels according to Paul's definition because it is the gospel of Jesus and something else. And I fear for ourselves, and for myself included, have we been sold to a false gospel? Maybe something that I didn't even mention. And that is why it is extremely important for us to know what the true gospel is, lest we be deceived and continue on that path that leads to destruction, not salvation. As we read earlier on by Elder uh, Melping, that the true gospel is, according to God, is the power of God for salvation for all who believes and for the righteous to live by faith. So why is it called the gospel or good news? And I will use these two words, two terms interchangeably. The gospel basically means good news. The good news is the gospel. Now, why is it that the, Jesus and the early Christians talked about the gospel? Because set against this backdrop, against this backdrop of having good news, is that God has announced in times of ancient past that there will come an impending judgment. A judgment that will be unlike others that it will be in epic proportions. Not only will be the children of Israel be judged as it experienced in past, but now the whole world will be judged. Everyone will be judged. Not just for those who are living, but those since the birth of the human race, every single person who has ever lived will be judged by God. And there is no avoiding and escaping this final judgment from the Lord. There is nothing that you, can, you and I can do to prevent it or to delay it. And unfortunately, this end-time judgment is not something that we have in our minds, in our perspective, as we live and serve the Lord. And we hardly make decisions based on this. And so because of this impending judgment, God has provided the good news. And the good news is that there is salvation and that there is only one way, one and only way to be saved from this judgment. Like the days of the flood of Noah, God saved all those who were in the ark. Like the days of Exodus, God saved all those who were in the house that was marked by the blood of the Lamb. So since the last days started, Till to our time, those who believe and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ will be saved. And that is why God has called this the good news or the gospel. There are four things I would like you to take note of what God has to say about this gospel. Four things. The four things are what God has written, what God has sent, what God has given, and what God has declared. If you look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, God begin, the writer Mark begins by the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written. It tells you that 
this is not an invention of man, but rather God is the author and the initiator of the gospel. Just as God is the one who will judge the world, God will be the one also to provide salvation to those who believe. God has been preparing and planning for the gospel to be proclaimed for the whole world. This is not something that was concocted by human, by man itself. In the midst of suffering as a result of their sins, Israel's sins, God promised his people that one day they will be comforted and saved from their sins and judgment. You know, it is if this was if Christianity was a human construct and human invention, it would be far easier for the word to be said that God gave the gospel to this man and now he's going to tell the people what the gospel is about. But Mark tells us, no, the gospel didn't begin with a man, it began with him. He was the one who began. He was the one who instructed Isaiah to write the gospel itself, to begin the gospel. And so by God enshrining his promise of how he will proclaim the gospel to the world, he is holding himself to that promise, accountable and responsible, that you can check me out, that I will one day fulfill. And so the implication of this is that no one has the right to add, alter, improve, or subtract what God has called to be the gospel. Our part is to believe in the gospel and trust it with it and to pass it on to the next and the next generation. The second thing that God does is that he sends a messenger. God has prepared someone who will go before the Lord in verse 1 and 2 of Mark chapter 1. God says, as written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 where this was quoted, if you were to read and identify the word Lord, you will quickly realize that this word Lord it's not an ordinary word, Lord, like just being master, but rather it is the sacred name of God, Lord, Yahweh. So what God is saying that this messenger of his will be preparing the way before me, someone who is God himself. It is such an idea of, it is how God is showing how special, how unique that person is. The idea of preparing the way or making the pastorate is something that was not uncommon in those days where before a king arrives to his destination, he would send his servants to ensure that the journey will be smooth and without any difficulty. But rather than just being a physical smoothing of the path, this messenger will prepare the hearts of the people. And this one person, which we identify as John, does something that is counterintuitive as a human being to tell us that this was an extraordinary person that he is preparing for. How do we know it's counterintuitive? Because if you read what John said about the one he's preparing, verse 7, look at what he says. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
Why is this counterintuitive? Because for a man who is having such great success and drawing all attention of Israel and Judea and Galilee to himself, instead of proclaiming himself to be someone, he's now saying that there is someone else even greater than I, mightier than I, that I myself, so-called, if people were to acknowledge him, the great John the Baptist, am not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. You know, it takes a different kind of person, an unusual person, to be able to look at another man and to lavish with such words and accolades. And the only reason why John was able to do that, all who consider him as a prophet, because the one that he is addressing is not just a mere man, but it is the Lord himself, an extraordinary man. And so when Jesus comes into the scene, he is identified by John, the great prophet. Jesus, being man, his name signifies something. His name Jesus, which is Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, means Yahweh is salvation. The gospel, the gospel is ultimately all about the Lord Jesus Christ, about Him and Him alone. That's it. That's it. Nothing else. Nothing to be added, nothing to be improved, to be altered, nothing. It's all about Him and Him alone. If I can extend it further, it's about Him, about who He is, about His works. His works would include His life, His teachings, His deeds, His suffering, His death, and His resurrection. This is what the gospel is all about. Now, what I share with you is not the gospel, but what the gospel contains. For us to know what the gospel truly is, is where the gospel of Mark is written. Mark knows that the gospel is not about a single definition or a paragraph, but it's about a life of a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all 16 chapters that Mark has purposefully crafted, drawn out the material for us, is to present to us the gospel. And it behooves us who wants to know the gospel, to read it, to study, to find out who this Jesus is. That is the gospel itself. Any other you will lose the richness and the fullness of the gospel. That is why it is, I'm so glad that we are studying, starting the year with the, Mark, uh, the gospel of Mark, that the next few months, that you will take time to learn, to wait, to reflect, to meditate who this Jesus is. You know, Jesus will enter the scene without any fanfare or elaborate celebration but quietly and humbly, unassuming. There are stories in the first century among the Greeks and the Romans of gods becoming men, Un not unusual, but never in this way of humility and obscurity. Obscurity in that we have no idea how he lived his life for about 30 over years before he came to the scene. It was quiet. It was unknown at all. But in the deities that's written about the Roman gods and the Greek gods, in the birth of, their, of these gods from a, from a baby to a child to a teenager, there are wonderful feats and acts to prove that this is a god itself. But for Jesus, none of this silence. Even today's term, Jesus looks weak 
according to our superheroes, those that you watch on Marvel and DC. Okay? I love Marvel and DC, so I'm not attacking them, but I'm just saying that it's so different. If you look at the superheroes on Marvel and DC, they are all tall, not like me, handsome, okay, around there, ripped, and I'm, I'm round, I'm not ripped. And some even dare to wear their underpants outside. It's such a different, it, it, this is the show of power. Such miraculous, such wonderful power, they, they can even fly. Even Neo from Matrix can fly. Jesus can't fly. Jesus looks weak and unimpressive. And he's easily killed and defeated at the end of the day. He will have no credentials and qualification that the world might consider impressive and remarkable. All he has to show for is just years as a carpenter. But this is the one, the one that God has chosen to save the world from sin that no other person can save. And so now look at how God identifies and confirms Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, verse 9 to 10, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. God will do something amazing that he will have done no other to, uh, none other to his other uh, servants. God will give his spirit to Jesus. But unlike the Old Testament, whereby the filling of the Holy Spirit was limited to some servants of God, like judges, prophets, and kings, to perform impossible human tasks, the filling of Jesus will be unlike others, because the heavens will respond that Mark identifies for us that it is a supernatural event that something is descended upon him. Not only is Jesus filled with the Spirit to indicate his uniqueness and calling, but he will be able to do something that others have never, been, have never done before, and that is to give others the power of the Holy Spirit, which John identifies. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we know Jesus was given the Spirit of God. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, He will go forth to do that work. Not only that, God will confirm Him with a voice declaring in heaven, verse 11, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. God will call Him in the most enduring term, Beloved Son. God is the Father, and Jesus, the perfect Son. Such a beautiful and enduring relationship that Jesus is the joy, the delight, and the pleasure of the Father. And Jesus will perfectly represent and reflect who God the Father is. You know, until now, God has only manifested Himself either in a voice or in powerful ways like in clouds, in smoke, in fire. But now he's going to manifest himself physically, seen and known through his son, Jesus Christ, who is both human and divine. Recently, I had an experience that I uh, never had before as a father. 
two, two weeks ago, my son Callum uh, went into primary one, and I had the privilege to be able to go on the first day with him. And I was so proud of him, you know. I was so happy, and I was also very sad. You know, a tear came to my eye also. My son no longer needs me anymore. I'm not there to look after him. And I remember I was sitting, we was, all the parents were standing at the uh, edge of the canteen, and because we are the, you know, you know, phone generation, everybody whipped out their phone and all the video, and my son was there, and I, and I was so proud of him. He went there, and he a bit sotong, went to the canteen, went to, uh, went to the stores, don't know what to buy, look around, and I felt so sad that I can't be there to help him. He's growing up. I'm so proud of him. And of course, the teacher helped him buy food, and the, the thing that made me so proud and also broke my heart is when he came to the table, the first thing he did was to say grace. <sighs> Pastor's son, wow. No, I'm joking. I was just so proud of him that he prayed because everybody else was not praying. Oh my goodness, I was so proud of him. But I was so, so, so sad that I can't be there with him. I'm so proud. Just a glimpse only. But the Father's joy and delight in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is infinitely more. All these writing, the confirmation of sending off of a messenger, the filling of the Spirit, the declaration of Jesus as my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, is to announce to the whole world to authenticate, to prove that the good news is here, is here. Jesus is the good news the gospel of God, and he will be the one who will save. But he will do it in a way that, will, that no one would expect or even remotely consider. Jesus' ways will be hugely disappointing. It would shatter our ideas of what a savior means as a man. The way that Jesus is going will challenge and confront our ideas of what it means to be saved and belong to God. So the all-important question that you have to ask is, do you still want Jesus to be your saviour? There are two parts to answer this question. But you might say to me, Kenneth, I, even though these things are written down for us to read and know, it happened so long ago, I can't relate. Jesus is no longer physically around us. How can we respond to an historical past or historical document? Look at what Jesus said to his disciples concerning his leaving and the Spirit of God. In John 16, verse 7, let me read. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The word advantage could also mean better because it's about comparing and contrasting. Can you imagine for the disciples to hear that it is better for them that Jesus leaves? And if that is true, then we are not any less disadvantaged or lacking because you and I don't see Jesus. All because the Spirit of God that dwell in Jesus, that empower Him, that raise Him from the grave, is the same Spirit of God that dwells in all who believe in Him. And not only that, we have the whole counsel, the word of God with us. We are even in a much better position than the disciples. Listen to what St. Ambrose, a, a bishop of Milan and theologian in the 3rd, 4th century said regarding the gospel. 
Thanks be the gospel by means of which we also, who do not see Christ, when he came into this world, seem to be with him when we read his deeds. So now hear what Jesus is to say about the gospel. What are we to do concerning the gospel of Jesus? There are basically two responses we can give. Either to reject or to believe. There is no middle ground. The middle ground does not exist in the Bible. Ultimately, it is about, do you think you need a savior? Or do you think you can save yourself? All who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ will be judged if they believe or reject the gospel. So the question for those who do not reject the gospel is, but want to believe is, what shall I do? As in the people in Acts chapter 2. And Mark gives us three responses to those who wish to believe in the gospel that build upon one another like steps. The first is repent. Repent. Jesus says in verse 14 of Mark 1, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. If you understand what God is saying to you this morning concerning the gospel and the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin, you know the way is to repent. You and I are deeply sinful, wicked, and corrupt. Our hearts are so wickedly deceitful that we will not admit that we are deeply flawed and marred only by the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel and His conviction will we recognize. And this is something that I discovered for myself in the last few months before the end of 2021. It was the most humbling and, if I can say, life-altering experience I discovered that I was more sinful, more wicked, more corrupt than I dared to realize. I have been avoiding it or beautifying myself and not recognizing it. As, but, the, as I, but as I draw closer to the Lord, the more my sins were being revealed. And yet, in the most amazing thing is that as my sins are being revealed, my wickedness and corruption is being revealed, I was not crushed or destroyed, but I was led to the gospel again and reminded that I needed Jesus as my saviour. I needed the gospel in my life, not by thought, but by life. There's a story that has helped me recognize how to never underestimate my sinfulness and wickedness. After World War II, some of the key architects of the final solution, which was the killing of the millions of Jews and others, those who were in charge were caught and put on trial for their war crimes against humanity. One such person was Adolf Eichmann, one of the key witnesses and survivors of the Holocaust to testify against Eichmann was a man called Yehiel Dinor. What happened at the court scene was unexpected. 
When Eichmann was brought to the court tribunal, the war crime tribunal, Dinor collapsed while giving his testimony because he saw him. And there was a bit of a pandemonium. There was recess and then um, things were reconvened. Years later, they, in, they happened to interview Dinor and ask him why he had fainted. And this was the report by the interviewer. Was Dinor overcome by hatred, fear, horrid memories when he saw Eichmann, that it flooded him and like muscle memory, the pain, the struggle, the trauma came? No, it was none of this. Dino explained to Wallace, who was the interviewer, all at once he realized that Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. Eichmann was an ordinary man. You see, you and I have the habit when we think of something that someone is evil or corrupt or wicked, we will caricature the person unrecognized, but purely we can see him that he's a bad person. His face is worth condemning. But when we realize that the person who is guilty of such heinous and horrible crimes is an ordinary person just like you and me. Dino continues, I was afraid for myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I'm exactly like he. You see, when you try to caricature evil and wickedness, you are having a wrong view or a diminished view of your own sinfulness. This was something that helped me to realize that I am easily as wicked and as cruel and as corrupt. This is our problem. Our problem is that we don't think that we are capable of such wickedness and sin. We play down our sins. We give excuses. We blame others for causing us to lapse in judgment out of character. And we think that we are still good. And by so doing, in continuing this way of excusing ourselves, of thinking this way that we are not all that bad, we will soon convince ourselves that the gospel is good news, but you know what? It is only for others and not for ourselves. We don't really need it because we have everything under control. We are doing pretty well. And in the end, what will happen is that we will end up being our own Messiah, our own Christ. And we will find ourselves committing the sins that we never thought we were capable of. I was recently, I was watching a show about monsters. And this human being that had become a monster said to the princess, the show has a princess, yes. And I think it's relevant for us today. And he says, monsters are more than just horrid looks and claws and teeth. Monsters are born of deeds alone, unforgivable ones. His definition of a monster is not the outward looking of how a monster looks like, but what he does. You and I are monsters, given the chance. Not only are we to repent, we are to believe. Believing in the gospel is about trusting. It is placing absolute trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone can save us, and not trying to save ourselves or coming out with our own ways and ideas. Jesus says in Mark 1.11, Repent and believe in the gospel. 
The Bible definition of believing, of trusting, is not trust only 50% or even 95%. It is all or nothing. It is all or it's not trusting or believing. Trusting in the Jesus that died for your sin and my sin, that took our place on the cross as a sinner so that we can take His place as sons and daughters beside our Heavenly Father. Trust that you have been forgiven of all your sins and that you are righteous, you are pure, you are holy, you are blameless and that the Father delights in you as He delighted in His Son. Not because of you, because of your deeds, but because of Jesus. Because of Jesus in and through Him. It is no longer about you or I. It is about Christ. It is about what Jesus has done for you. The gospel is about an announcement of what Christ has done for you. It is not something for us to achieve. That is why it's the gospel. All you have to do is repent and believe. And the last step that Mark tells us, that Christ tells us that we need to do is to follow him. Mark 17, verse 17. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. If you truly understand the gospel, the last follow-up response is to follow him. In the Bible, everyone who repents and believes in Jesus will become his disciple. There is no such definition whereby believing in Jesus and not becoming a disciple. It is synonymous. It is connected. It is whole. Being a disciple of Jesus is not an option or one of several paths to take. It is the only path to take for us after we have repented and believed. Salvation in Christ is the beginning of a new life, not the end. It is the end of our old life but the beginning of a new life, a new life to discover the glory, the greatness, the blessings of God and the path that Christ leads us. Discipleship is the second path to it. It is to stop following our old ways, to abandon our idols and ourselves and to follow Jesus through and through till death. And to be a disciple according to to scriptures, you can't do it by yourself. You can't be a disciple by yourself. You need to have a mature, wiser Christian to mentor, to guide you to follow Christ, which was later developed and later the Lord Jesus Christ commissioned the apostles to do so, make disciples. To be disciple and making disciples was the way how Christ made the church, desired the church to grow and to reach the world. And it was by discipleship that the church, the early church, won the Western world itself. And so this morning, my brothers and sisters, I hope you hear the voice of God speaking to you and the Holy Spirit intimating to your heart to know and to examine yourself whether what you hold is the true gospel. And if it's not, you have every right to reject it and be free from it and to embrace the gospel that Christ had given his life for. But yet, it is not enough to have the right gospel, but to respond. Because to not to respond is to reject. To respond in repentance. 
but not be afraid. The repentance will bring life, will bring joy, will bring satisfaction. And to believe that Jesus died for you and that you are forgiven and to follow him to the ends of the earth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that came at such a high cost, but it was all part of your plan to redeem the world. And I pray for all who are here listening will respond in repenting of our sins, that how you have exposed our sins and how we need a Savior. We cannot save ourselves, but yet to know that in repentance there is life, life abundance, blessing beyond measure and to believe and follow Christ faithfully. So bless us, Father. May we be a church, be known, that always preaches and teaches the true gospel of Jesus Christ. For your glory, for Christ's sake, and his name we pray. Amen.